Well, again, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, welcome again to Faith. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And again, it's great to have you with us, whether you're with us in the room, whether you're with us online today. Uh, we are in the second week of a series that we have entitled Big Ten. And this has nothing to do with college sports. It's actually a series on God's Big Ten or the Ten Commandments. And what we've been talking about in this series, uh, we just started last week, but we've been going, hey, the Big Ten, they are so much more. The Ten Commandments are so much more than some dusty list of rules that some old codger came up with to ruin your fun in life. Instead, we've been saying that in the, in the Big Ten and the Ten Commandments, we have foundational principles for God's people that, that are meant to set us free to live our best lives while at the same time protecting us from the very things that would destroy us. And so the idea is, last week we talked about, this is why we're going to study the Big Ten this summer. And then we said, each week after that, we're going to get after one commandment each week, kind of unpack that and discover this truth about that commandment. Now, before we pray, jump into this week's commandment, uh, as Matt promised, some uh, update on the COVID stuff, right? Uh, if you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard, uh, protocol in Michigan are changing on Tuesday, and that's going to impact protocol uh, one week from today, the 27th, and hopefully beyond here at church. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, first and second service in this room, uh, masks are optional. If you want to wear one, knock yourself out. If you don't, you don't have to, uh, regardless of your vaccination status. Uh, for our students, uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers, again, masks are optional. Um, when it comes to registering for church, you can get online and try and register. You won't be able to after this Sunday. Uh, you can search the internet. You can register at other churches. You won't be able to here. You can just come, all right? Uh, the ushers aren't going to try. Yeah. <laughs> you can stop fighting the ushers about sitting in the front row. All right? Um, you just sit where you want, with whom you want. Now, if you've been avoiding somebody throughout the entirety of COVID and really liked that three-seat distance, well, maybe you should get reconciled, all right? Um, uh, hospitality, the lobby will be open. Hospitality will be inside at the cafe. Really, the only place that the protocols are going to kind of be maintained, we're going to continue to do um, the disinfecting. And, for, you know, we've had some parents say to us, hey, you know, my kid can't get vaccinated. I want my kid to have a masked option. So first service, faith kids will be masked. Other people are like, are you paying attention? You're more likely to die of the flu than you are COVID if you're a kid. I want my kid to have an unmasked option. Fine, come to second service. Second service will be unmasked for kids. So that's how all that's going to work. If you have questions, grab Matt after church. He knows everything. He will help you out. All right, so that, that said, um, let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll jump into today's commandment. Father, um, just thank you for our dads, for this Father's Day weekend, and for time to celebrate our biological fathers, our mentors, our spiritual fathers. Thank you for being our ultimate father and showing us what dad is supposed to be all about when we get it right and when we get it wrong. Father, just as, as we spend time today um, beginning to unpack the commandments, please speak your truth to us and our lives. 
Give us hearts and minds that are open to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how many payments did I say we're going to get after today? Yeah, see, I'm holding up there. That's one. I'm giving you the answer, all right? Uh, but we're going to do two, all right? And before you're like, liar, that's the ninth commandment. You already blew it, all right? Easy, all right? Here's the deal. With the, the first two commandments, many scholars, and I don't see myself as a scholar, but I think they're right. Many scholars would argue that the first two commandments are meant to go together, that they, they, they fit together hand in glove, uh, that you really can't have one without the other. You really can't break one without breaking the other. Uh, for example, we're gonna, if you want to, you can open up to Exodus chapter 20. If you've got a device or a Bible, it'll be up on the screen as well. As I read through the first two commandments, just listen for how these, these go together. Uh, Exodus 20, picking up verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God and God alone is meant to sit on the throne of your heart and my heart. God is meant to be of first importance in our lives. And then commandment number two is you shouldn't worship any idols. By worship, we mean your greatest levels of devotion and trust and sacrifice. They are reserved for God and God alone. And, and again, I, I would contend these two go together. That something can't be of first importance in your life without receiving your worship, without receiving your greatest levels of devotion, trust, and sacrifice. And, and when you give something your greatest levels of devotion, trust, and sacrifice, whether you call it a God or not, it is functioning as one in your life. They go hand in hand. Now, to, to help us think through these first two commandments and, and how they work themselves out in practical ways in our lives, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a narrative from Daniel chapter 3. And in this narrative, we're going to go way back in history, but we're going to see people who in many ways, their lives are very much like ours, at least when you get beneath the surface. So picking up Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we're told King, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. I got that wrong for service. I said 60 and 60. Um, so if we're taping and we're going to go, what service are we put on the internet? Cat, second service. All right. So 60 cubits high and six cubits wide and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So basically what you have here, Nebuchadnezzar builds an idol. Everybody familiar with the cubit? If you don't use the cubit, all right, it's, it's basically 90 feet high. He's like, when I'm doing an idol, it's go big or go home, all right? Now, if you're like, oh, come on now, really? What is it with the Bible? Why do they, we know people back then couldn't do stuff like that. Why do they got to exaggerate like that? Actually, no, not an exaggeration. Take, for example, the Great Sphinx, all right? You can go to Egypt, you can see this. It's 240 feet long and about 65 feet high. It dates 2500 B.C. 
That's about 2,000 years prior to when Nebuchadnezzar builds his statue. So not an exaggeration. It's actually very reasonable. So Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue, and then he brings all of his government officials to the plains of Dura to dedicate the thing. And, and he basically says, okay, this is how it's going to work. The music is going to play, and when the music played, I want you to fall down and to worship the idol, or you can be thrown into the blazing furnace. Those are your options. And again, the blazing furnace, this is something you would need if you're going to put together, you know, the, you're going to bake the bricks for the stand, for the statue. You're going to smelt the metal that you're going to plate the statue with. You need something like this. And again, history tells us the ancient Mesopotamians, they had these massive blasting furnaces. They could reach temperatures of up to about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and they would use them for projects like these. So Nebuchadnezzar, being the reasonable employee he, that he is, employer that he is, calls all his employees together, and it's like, listen, here's my statue. We're going to have a concert. You're going to bow down and worship, or I'm going to cook you alive. And in case, in case you're going to test me on this, the furnace is here. It's all fired up. It's ready to go. Now, a reasonable question to ask yourself is why? Like, why is Nebuchadnezzar acting like this? Again, it's easy to read the Bible and be like, those people in the Bible and their false gods and their idols, I am so glad we've gotten beyond this today, that we're more sophisticated and we don't behave like they did then. But, but I would contend th the statue is really just a surface issue. That if you take the time to dig down beneath why Nebuchadnezzar is behaving the way that he is, you, you see that the, the statue that's really not the issue at all. There, there's some gods beneath the surface that are motivating his behavior, and they're really not that different than the kind of gods that motivate our behavior today. So why is Nebuchadnezzar acting like this? Well, you go back to the 10th year of his reign, his own government officials try and take over. They have a coup. They, they, they try and take his life and his power and his wealth. Now, by Daniel chapter 3, he has long since quelled the rebellion. He is large and in charge. He's in control of the world. Everybody's doing what he says. The, 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 the wealth of the world is right there at his fingertips. But, but Nebuchadnezzar's doing this anyway. Because with this concert and with this idol, he can determine which one of my remaining government officials are loyal to me and which ones aren't. With this really unreasonable and request that makes no kind of sense, he can see who is going to blindly obey me and who isn't. You see, again, beneath the surface, the things that functioned as his God, they, they weren't the statue. It was things like control and money. I, I am in control of the kingdom. My subjects obey me. People do what I tell them to. The wealth of the greatest nation the world had known up until that time, I have access to all of it. See, those were the things that were of first importance to Nebuchadnezzar. Those were the things that he would sacrifice anything to maintain, that he put his trust in, that he was devoted to. They functioned as his gods. And, and the, those kind of functional gods, they're not reserved to 600 BC. We still see them today. Like, I bet you we could all name a politician who we believe would stop at nothing to maintain their political power. 
And the name we come up with would probably reflect how we voted back in November. I bet you we all know people who are convinced that money and the stuff that they can get with money, that is what is really going to fulfill them in life. And they were, there's nothing they won't do in their pursuit of money and the stuff they can buy. The, the, the functional gods that Nebuchadnezzar is going after here, they're not that different. See, here's the thing about a false god especially in our day and age. Very rarely is it some statue in a shrine in somebody's house or in a temple in the third world. There are things that are readily available to us. And the crazy thing is, they're not even bad things half the time. Sometimes they're good things. But the minute they become the thing, the most important thing, the thing that commands our greatest levels of devotion and trust and sacrifice, they become a problem. You have things like power, career, education, finding a spouse, the spouse that I have now, having a child, the children that I have now, money, possessions, entertainment, drugs, alcohol, sex, gaming, you name it. It has the power to compete with God for first place in our lives. See, with these first two commandments, God is saying, listen, that's not okay. I'm not going to tolerate another God in our relationship. In fact, God even says, I'm a jealous God. To which some of us will go, okay, God, that sounds a little bit insecure, a little bit immature. Jealous is a middle school kind of trait. And I would go, no. No, it's neither insecure or immature. Actually, it's appropriate. Remember last week we talked about, like, who, who, who are the Ten Commandments for? Are the Ten Commandments for people who don't know God and you, you follow these ten things and that gets you into a relationship with God? Or are the Ten Commandments for people who have a relationship with God and this determines how you're supposed to function there, you know, moving forward? We said it right at the beginning today. These are foundational principles for God's people. I have a relationship with God, and I'm going to order my life in this direction because of that relationship. These don't get me that relationship. I have the relationship and move in this direction. Here's the thing about these first two commandments. They let us know God sees that relationship with you as an exclusive relationship. God's letting you know he's not a swinger. I laugh at that? I don't know. You figure that out. See, exclusive means it's just you and God. That's the definition of an exclusive. And we get this. Like, if you go out to dinner this week, and you see me at the restaurant, and I'm with a woman who isn't my wife, Laura, and we're holding hands, making googly eyes at each other across the table, And when nobody's looking, we're stealing kisses. How many of you going to have a problem with that? I'll tell you one person for sure who's going to have a problem with that. My wife, Laura, amen? Yeah. Yeah, because she thinks this relationship's exclusive. And if I bring another woman into the relationship and she's jealous, you're not going to be like, well, that's immature, that's insecure. You're like, no, that's appropriate. God is saying... You can't bring other gods into this relationship. This is exclusive. 
It's just me and you. And God understands. He understands what those false gods will do. He understands they will promise us to deliver what only he can deliver, but then leave us disappointed and broken and unfulfilled. And again, we know this. We've seen this. Like, we know, we've seen that person who's like, you know, if I can reach the top of the ladder, I just climb the ladder at work, this is going to make life work. And they, they, they will sacrifice anything spiritually, relationally, at home, with wife, with kids, with, with husband, to get there. And when they finally get there, they discover it's lonely at the top of the organization. And it's lonelier still now in an empty house. We've all seen that person who's convinced, if I can just find that special someone, they will complete me. And they, 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 they will just dive into one relationship after the next. They, they ignore all the relational red flags. They rush into a marriage. And then they place a weight on their spouse, relationally and spiritually, that they expect their spouse to do things for them that only God can do. And when their spouse can't do it, and the relationship begins to swirl the drain, they say these famous words, I guess I married the wrong person. And now they're ripe for an affair or divorce. We've all seen a person who's chasing after the, the, the next shiny, bigger, newer, faster, you fill in the blank. Because when they get that, then they're going to be happy. And they get it. They work hard. And they get it. You get this little bump emotionally, but pretty quickly, the thrill is gone. Right? And then what do they do? They chase after the next shiny, big, new, you know, flashy, fill in the blank. See, with these first two commandments, God's trying to protect us from that. He's trying to set us free to a better life. This is where Nebuchadnezzar's at. Just think about it. He squashed the rebellion. He rules the world. If he wants it, he has it. There is no end to his wealth. He has everything that his world tells him he needs in order to be happy. He should be living the dream. But he's not. He senses something's missing. He senses there's more to life than this. And now he's grasping. And rather than go to the one true God to give him what his soul really longs for, he instead doubles down on the false gods of wealth and power. When God gives us these first two commandments, again, he's trying to save us from that. So, Nebuchadnezzar, doubles down, plays the music, all the government officials, just about all of them, people of every language fell down and worshiped the image. Just about all his government officials bow down and worship the statue. Now, stop and think. These are people who are ruling the known world. Do these people really think that that statue is worthy of their worship their greatest levels of devotion, trust, and sacrifice, that it's a God? Probably not. Instead, I think you see a large group of people making a decision. Like, 
Nebuchadnezzar said, you can bow down or you can burn. And so now they've got to decide, is God going to be the, the, the individual who gets to rule in my heart? Am I going to be devoted to him and him alone? Am I going to trust he's going to take care of me? He knows best. Am I willing to sacrifice anything to maintain my loyalty to him? Or am I going to be comfortable and safe and maybe even advance politically? They make a decision. And in doing so, it's, it's, again, it's not about the statue. A statue is just a surface issue. Beneath the surface, their functional gods are their own personal comfort, their own personal well-being, and their success vocationally. And they make decisions that reflect that those are their functional gods. Now, I say just about everybody bowed down, because if you know Daniel chapter 3, you know there are three who didn't. You, You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably. Three Hebrew boys who were taken from Israel brought to Babylon, educated there, and who are now functioning at a high level in Nebuchadnezzar's government. Three, three young men who said, you know what? God and God alone gets to sit on the throne of our hearts. They're not bowing down. Now, their co-workers find out about this. And as quickly as they can, they go to Nebuchadnezzar and they narc Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out. Because in the ancient world, politics was a cutthroat game. Nothing like our lives, right? Such a book. It's so different than the world we live in. So they go immediately. They're like, hey, you said bow or burn. There are three Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. See, here's the deal. You keep God of first importance in your life, there will be people in your life who won't like that. Because your faithfulness will shine a light into the darkness of their world. It will expose the other gods they have brought into a relationship that is meant to be exclusive. And rather than deal with their own spiritual infidelity, they will attack you and try and pull you down. Because if they can get you to go where they have been, they don't have to feel guilty about being there themselves. And so these, these, they run to Nebuchadnezzar, and they, they, you got to do something about these guys. And when Nebuchadnezzar hears about this, he is irate because their faithfulness is now interfering with his pursuit of idolatry. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of loses his mind. He's like, really? Really? Okay, you you guys have been amazing in the government. You get one more chance at this. He says, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. All's forgiven. But, But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, we've said this before, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their their response is one of my favorite responses in all the Old Testament. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your hand, 
But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These three have decided. God and God alone gets to sit on the throne of their hearts. Sure, there are other things in their life that are important, but they don't get to be of greater importance than God. Sure, there are people who should, they, they, they need to respect, but those people don't get to dictate to them a worldview that is contrary to the one that God has already given them. Their devotion, their trust, the things that they will sacrifice for the most, that is reserved for God, no matter what. If, he, if he's going to save them, great. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't do what they hope and want him to do, he and he alone is going to get to be God in their lives. And if you think about it, anything less than this would just reveal idolatry on their part. See, if Nebuchadnezzar says, you're going to bow, you're going to burn, and they're like, well, hey, we're not going to bow as long as God takes care of us. But if God doesn't come through, God lets things happen to us like, that, that we don't want to happen to us, then, then, then we can come to the conclusion he doesn't exist anymore. Or if I pray and I ask God to do this thing and God doesn't do what I asked him to do, well, then, then I can decide, you know what? I don't want a relationship with that kind of God. All that reveals is that Issues like how I want life to go. My, my wisdom, my comfort, my well-being. These are now the functional gods in my life. With their co-workers pressuring them, with the king threatening their lives, they say, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty we will not serve your gods or worship the image you have set up. So Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. Has the furnace heated up seven times hotter. Because we all know, hot fire will kill you. But really hot fire is worse. Stupid, I don't know. The man's out of his mind mad, right? Fires this thing up, ties them up throws them in the furnace, and then sits there waiting for them to go up like Roman candles. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, weren't there three men tied up and thrown into the fire? Well, yeah, that's what you did. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. It's like the song that we sing. Those three found a grace when their hearts were under fire. They found another way when the walls were closing in. When they looked at the space between what used to be in this reckoning, they realized that they were never alone. There was another in the fire walking there with them. So Nebuchadnezzar runs to the mouth of the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And they shout back, why don't you come inside instead? 
So they come out. And the fire had not harmed their robes, their bodies. The hair on their head was not singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. The only thing that burned up in the fire were the ropes that once bound them. And Nebuchadnezzar, he says, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were one out, they, they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So, going back to the Big Ten. First two commandments. No other gods. Don't worship any idols. Now, I would contend that these two are one and two on purpose. Like God didn't give Moses ten commandments and he shook them up in a hat and drew them out and they just happened to land in this order. That he did it on purpose. That these first two commandments, they are meant to be foundational in our lives, in our relationship with God, and with the other eight commandments. How, how I do with these first two will impact dramatically how I do with the other eight. In fact, I can't break one of the other eight without in some way getting one of the first two wrong to begin with. They are what I like to refer to as a top button principle. So you get the top button in your shirt and the right buttonhole, and all the rest fall into place. You get the top button in your shirt and the wrong buttonhole, and all the buttons are out of alignment. Amen? That's all you've seen all sermon long. I hear you whispering in your seat, does he know these? Does he that, that, that? First service, I got people blowing up my phone, texting me, texting my wife. Didn't you dress them right this morning? What's wrong with you guys at that house? See, we can see this when it comes to a shirt. We struggle to see this when it comes to our lives. We, we miss the connection between how we're doing with these first two commandments and the issues that we have relationally and spiritually and financially and sexually and more. But the connection between getting these first two wrong and the issues we have in these other areas of our lives, it's as plain to your Father in heaven as a shirt on my back. And with these first two commandments, he's going, hey, let me help you get the first two buttons in the right holes so that everything else will fall into place. So, as we finish today, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I would, I would encourage you just to think about the answers yourself. But these questions are helpful in helping us figure out, hey, how are we doing with the first two buttons? Is something out of alignment? So here we go. Question number one. Question number one. What do you dream about? Like what puts a twinkle in your eye? What dominates your mind and your thinking? And again, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. 
But the things that we dream about, they have the potential to wrestle with God for the throne of our hearts. Number two, and this, this one's crazy insightful. What are you afraid of losing? What keeps you up at night because you couldn't pin it down during the day? What are you checking for? Is there something or somebody who if you lost that person or you lost that thing, you'd be like, I don't know if life is worth living now. If you have somebody, if you have something like that, they could be a false god. Number three, where do you turn for sanctuary? Like when the wheels are coming off the bus of your life, where do you go for comfort? Where, where do you go to escape? Where do you go for solace? Again, they don't have to be bad things. But if these are the things I go to more than or before I go to God, they could be competing for first place in my life with him. And number four, what do you make sacrifices for? What will you stay up late for? What will you get up early for? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What we're willing to sacrifice for, sometimes it's our God. How I answer these first four questions can help me figure out if I got the right buttons and the right holes. So we're going to pray. And it's... We've been talking today, if you just sense the God who you are in a relationship with that's meant to be exclusive. If you, if you sense there's been something trying to creep into that relationship and you need to deal with that, I, just, I would invite you to pray silently with me. Have that conversation with God. And if the God of the Bible is someone who you have not yet entered into an exclusive relationship with, but you're ready to? Again, whether you're in person, whether you're online, I would just invite you to pray with me and do just that. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth and the way you're trying to set us free. Father, for some of us, as we've been having this conversation, you've just put your finger on our hearts, on our minds, and said, hey, let this thing compete with me. God, we just want to confess what that is to you. We want to ask that you would forgive us, please. God, we just want to ask for your grace to live differently. Thank you that we can go to you for help even though this is the relationship that we've muddied up. And Father, for some of us, we've just, our, our lives have been chasing after one thing after another rather than you. Expecting a person, a place, a thing, a role to do what only you can do. And it's left us broken and unsatisfied and unfulfilled. We just confess we have sinned. Forgive us. We cannot fix this ourselves. We cannot make this right ourselves. We need Jesus. In this moment, we put our faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
We surrender ourselves to following him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.